Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. China's comeback. The economy grows 4.9% in the third quarter. Democrats' deadline, just hours left to agree a stimulus deal before the U.S. election. And Europe on edge, Italy announces tough new COVID-19 virus restrictions. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us as always. And the First Move countdown clock is well and truly on this Monday. Let me walk you through it. 15 more days until the November 3rd presidential election here in the United States. Four days to the next Biden-Trump debate and less than 48 hours until all hope of a financial aid bill before the U.S. election is vanquished, at least according to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Wow, there's a lot to come. U.S. futures starting the week higher, meanwhile, as investors, I think, assess the chances that Congress will finally put people before politics and do something short term. Otherwise, they're assuming, I think, help comes post-election. It's a case of when, not if. Not necessarily the same, of course, for struggling Americans. Deals, meanwhile, are getting done in the embattled oil sector as consolidation continues. ConocoPhillips buying shale oil driller Concho for almost $10 billion. The consolidation expected to continue too, but also helping sentiment, and I've already mentioned it, the Chinese data overnight. GDP in the third quarter growing some 4.9% in China, slightly softer than expected, but that number suggests a full recovery of all the output lost during the desperately bad first quarter amid those COVID-related lockdowns. Taken at face value, and I'm saying that with some degree of caution, this provides some kind of lesson perhaps in the benefits of both stimulus and controlling the virus, which in turn dictates the pace of recovery. And we've seen that all over the world. China currently on track to be the only major economy to post overall growth this year, there may be some challenges to that and negative consequences, which we will discuss shortly. For now, though, the Shanghai Composite up more than 8% in 2020. That's a better performance, as you can see here, than the S&P 500 just. Let's get to the drivers. Selena Wang is in Hong Kong for us. Selena, you've had a look at this data. Good signs from the consumer and the Golden Week holiday, perhaps, and people traveling domestically told us this. Walk us through the numbers. Julie, we've been talking about the contrast between China and the rest of the world for several weeks now, and these GDP numbers just reinforce that. While the rest of the world is dealing with the worst crisis since the Great Depression, China is posting this 4.9% gain in the third quarter. Of course, as you said, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but the economists I speak to say that when they look at other gauges and outside data sources, it does directionally point towards the significant recovery in China. Compare that to what the predictions are in the U.S. It's expected to contract more than 4%. The Eurozone expected to contract more than 8%. If we can just pull up that chart, which shows that the bounce back in 2021 for these advanced economies isn't going to be enough to offset the damage done in 2020. China, as you mentioned, expected to be the only major economy to grow this year. As a result of this, China's share of global GDP is also increasing. China's economy is expected to be worth $14.6 trillion by the end of 2020, roughly equivalent to 17.5% of global GDP. Now, all of this 
is just a reminder, and you hinted at this earlier, that unless a country is able to rein in the pandemic, they can't really post a sustainable recovery. And so far, China's strategy seems to be working when it comes to mass testing, contact tracing, and the selective lockdowns. And the consumption does show this recovery as well. We saw more than 3% growth in September. We spoke about the Golden Week holiday when more than half a billion people in China were traveling. But there are some risks here as well. For one, like many other countries, China's recovery has been uneven. It's disproportionately impacted the poor. We know that during the height of the pandemic in China, millions of people across China lost their jobs. And China's data does not give us a full picture of the jobless. But we know that there is still immense pressure on unemployment as well as on people's incomes. So that does raise the question of how sustainable is this going to be Mm. when people just don't have as much money in their pockets. And this is a challenge all over the world. And it's a great point. And also, when an economy is growing, can it decouple from the rest of the world when they're still struggling? Huge question still to ask, aside from the validity of the data, Selena. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that update there. All right, here in the United States, with just two weeks until Election Day, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi giving the White House a Tuesday deadline for a stimulus deal to pass a relief package before the election, bringing further pressure for a fast breakthrough. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, the pressure has never been higher, quite frankly, but we've been wittering on about this for for weeks and weeks and weeks. When I look at some of the details and the noises we get from all sides, and there's more than two here, quite frankly, I still don't think a deal is possible given the disagreements. What do you think? It's going to be tough because they've been going Mm. over this familiar ground now for months. I mean, you go all the way back uh, to May 15th. That's when the House, the Democrats passed $3.4 trillion in their HEROES Act. Then they came down, came down to $2.2 trillion. Uh, Republicans have said they're more interested in $1.8 trillion or even smaller, skinnier deals. There's just a lot of negotiating that has already happened. And we know that Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, has said that fighting the virus and winning against the virus has to be central to all of this. So testing language... uh, about testing and tracing is really important. And she says, at least, that negotiators have backtracked on some of their uh, promises there. You're right. It's three parties here, really. It's the White House, it's Senate Republicans, and it's Democrats. So, you know, you've got different negotiating teams and different different, uh, aims here. And and the fact that we're debating that we should have a consistent and a coherent plan for testing, tracing has been proven a challenge in other countries as well where privacy laws play into it as well. But the idea that we shouldn't be still ramping up testing to try and enable schools to get back online, businesses to get back online, it's sort of heartbreaking that we're still challenged by this particular issue. Well, that should be the first, I mean, that should be the first thing in a national strategy, right, to to corral the coronavirus would be testing. And we just have not done that. That has not been a real priority. And Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are trying to say, essentially, look, we can keep we can keep spending borrowed money in this crisis. But you have to tell us how we're going to get out of this crisis. Uh, You know, so that's that's a really important angle here, I think, as well. You know, what the Republicans would like to see is liability protections. Um, The White House has been sort of against giving money to states, state aid. Um, I talked to the economist Diane Swank or Diane Swank told CNN, actually, that that, um, you know, the state aid is a really important part of this because you're going to see more layoffs soon. You know, think firefighters, teachers, police officers. I mean, these are funded by the states and they've seen their revenues just uh, vanish because of coronavirus. Um, That's a really important part of this. And we know they've been fighting about that for months. 
yeah, we'd love to spend less money, but you have to control the virus. The virus has to be in control and then we can spend less. Otherwise, we right. have to buy the recovery. You can't have it both ways. Right. Christine Romans. Yes. Thank you so much. We'll keep our fingers crossed. All right, let's move on. Italy's prime minister is unveiling new COVID-19 restrictions as daily cases surge to record highs. Giuseppe Conte calls the situation critical, but says he's hoping to avoid another lockdown that could severely hurt the economy. Ben Whedon is live in Naples for us. Ben, great to have you with us. Just talk us through some of these restrictions and also if you've got the details, hospitalizations. Cases is one thing, but we also need to track hospitalizations to get a sense of what's going on here. What are we seeing? What we're seeing is a fairly dramatic increase in the number of people in intensive care here in Italy, sort of nation wide. But it's important to keep these in the sort of the broader context of this pandemic. Uh, the first case of coronavirus was seen here on the 21st of February this year. But at this point, there are 750 people in intensive care in the entire country. That's as of yesterday. But that's really just around a fifth of the number who were in intensive care at the height of the pandemic earlier this year. So they've sort of there the curve that is such a cause of concern to medical authorities, whereby the medical facilities are overwhelmed is still far away. Uh, What we've seen, for instance, is that there has been For the fifth day in a row, and we're expecting it to be the case also today, record numbers in the number of new corona, record increases in the number of new coronavirus cases, almost 12,000 yesterday. But that is partially a reflection of the increase in testing. Yesterday, we were at a testing facility uh, here in Naples, a a facility that tests about 1,000 people a day, testing has really sort of gone through the roof here. Now, unlike before, when you had to have symptoms of coronavirus, now uh, you just have to have the desire to get a test. Anybody can get a test for free. Uh, So we were speaking with one of the senior specialists in uh, diseases here who said that, yes, you have this surge in new numbers because of testing, but the actual number of patients is lagging way behind. Also lagging behind is the death toll. Yesterday, 69 people passed away, unfortunately, from coronavirus. But compare that to the peak of the pandemic on the 29th of March, 969 people died. So it does appear that the Italian government has got a handle of the situation at the moment. Of course, the problem is we're really just in the middle of October. Winter is well ahead of us. And the fear is that you could have a situation similar to what we saw earlier this year if these numbers continue to climb. And if you look at the graphs, the numbers are going like this. Julia? Yeah, this is the key. More testing, which puts the cases in perspective. Just a fifth of the people in intensive care compared to the peak back then. But we have to act now because winter's coming. Ben Weedman in Naples. Thank you so much for that. All right, here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Tens of thousands of pro-democracy demonstrators defied a protest ban once again in Thailand over the weekend. At least 70 people were arrested in Bangkok. The protesters are calling for a new constitution and a limit on the king's power. Thailand's government is promising to protect the monarchy. In Colorado, firefighters are struggling to contain the largest wildfire in state history. But it's not the only one. 
Two new blazes sparked over the weekend in Boulder County, which is already coping with a severe drought. One of them has quickly grown to nearly 3,700 hectares. Wow. All right, coming up after the break on First Move, the roll call of my next guest includes Facebook, LinkedIn, PayPal, and too many others to mention. Reid Hoffman tells me integrity is everything in the presidential election. Some strong views, and he joins us next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. election is just over two weeks away. And with the finish line in sight, Joe Biden and Donald Trump spent the weekend campaigning a very different looking event. But as they enter the final sprint, the co-founder of LinkedIn says we may not know who's won until long after the polls close. He also says the stability of the U.S. economy is at risk unless everyone does their bit to safeguard confidence in the election result. Joining us now is Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn and partner at venture capital firm Greylock Partners. He's also one of over 50 business leaders who signed a statement calling for calm and civility in the face of an uncertain outcome at the polls. Reid, fantastic to have you on the show with us once again. Um, I read this statement in conjunction with the Leadership Now project, and my overwhelming sense from this is that you're calling for calm and the civility at a very emotional and and emotive and divisive time. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I thought was important for business leaders to understand, given that, you know, generally speaking, especially in American business, we tend to try to separate ourselves from politics to be inclusive, uh, you know, employees, customers, investors, etc. But it's like, actually here, business leaders need to speak up. And they need to speak up on the democratic process, just on the fact that we're living in a pandemic, we're going to have a lot of vote by mail. We need to be calm as we count all of the votes. We need to make sure that we do count all the votes. And that speaking up on this topic is not actually, in fact, you know, being political, uh, either capital P or small p, but actually, in fact, just expressing care for our country, care for the democratic process. And this is irrespective of what your political affiliation is. We've had society see silos built up, families unable to talk about their political preferences, the sort of toxicity and divisions within society have grown up. You're saying actually it's business's um, responsibility to encourage conversation, debate about the views. Yeah, precisely, because part of the thing is to say, look, what you can do is you can step forward and say, look, what's important is that we come together as a country. What's important is, you know, business needs stability and calm in order to invest, in order to, you know, kind of build the future. And what we're about to do is get into a election where the first time the vote by mail because of the pandemic is at record numbers. And so very unlikely that we're going to know the evening of November 3rd what the actual, in fact, final vote count is. And we should just make sure that we count all the votes, stay calm as we do it, don't allow anyone to prematurely declare victory. Just say, hey, look, let's let's be, you know, American democracy people and let's do that. Yeah. And the, and the media plays a huge role in this, too, about the patience to allow to to allow the votes to be collected as well. I mean, there's a difference between an inconclusive election result because the results are so close and a contested election where either one party says 
hey, we don't accept the result or the voters of individual parties don't accept it. And read, I, my fear is that that's what we're going to see here, no matter what the result is. Either voters simply say, I don't want this person to be my president. How big is that risk? Well, obviously, we're in a deeply emotional and, and turbulent time. And there's people who, you know, kind of like are just, you know, uh, absolutely opposed to the notion of either Trump winning another four years or Biden winning uh, for different reasons, obviously. But be that as it may, the problem is, is that claims to premature victory or claims that you should that you should go and uh, and and kind of protest before the, 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 the legal process is run, before every vote is counted, before the vote by mails are counted, any attacks on the democratic process, I believe personally, are kind of anti the thing that makes American democracy special. We should we should be rule of law, we should be civility, we should be let let us be a democracy. And that's what I think is really important. I think business leaders speaking out on that are not being partisan, not being political. And, you know, obviously can be uh, great sources of calm because obviously many business leaders, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, are essentially centrists and not at these edges of the most emotional, you know, kind of political combat. It's kind of putting society before business, to your point. It's like you can't you can't play sides here. You have to put society and being American and American democracy first. Yes. And if you do that, you're actually also being pro-business, right? You're 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 saying, okay, right, uh, a stable and calm society is precisely what is good for business in America and for our business. So the um, cost of Bidenomics is a title from a Wall Street Journal op-ed over the weekend. It was the Hoover Institution. They're right-leaning. We should make the point. But they were talking about the costs, ultimately, if we see Joe Biden win the presidency, fulfill some of his plans as far as regulation is concerned, as far as tax rates are concerned. Reid, give me the counter to this, because I know you believe that Biden can be better for business, almost irrespective of the policies that we're looking at going forward. I guess it comes back to your point uh, about stability. Yeah, totally true. I mean, basically, the question is, 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 is business, business is not about a little bit difference in taxes or anything else. Business is about the ability to grow your customers, to grow your employees, to make jobs. And actually, in fact, one of the things that I think is ironic here, you know, in the Hoover thing is Moody's and Goldman Sachs, two places that are not exactly known for their kind of liberal progressive views, but are actually straight economic, straight business actually give Biden's plan over 7 million creation of new jobs, more than Trump's, it's actually nearly 19, and would raise the average American's income by nearly $4,800, unlike Trump's, which would be nothing for the average household. And so actually, in fact, I think that broadly speaking, when you consider the business vote, (laughs) right, I believe very strongly, and I think that there is classic economist sources like Moody's and Goldman Sachs that think Biden is actually, in fact, the business choice. Yeah, it's interesting, Reid, as well. I mean, one of the other big criticisms, I think, the fears, and it's very much debated here in the United States, is the idea of Supreme Court packing, which we've not had a definitive decision on from from Joe Biden as well. The risk that new states, probably Democratic-leaning states, could be added. Just the shift of power that was enshrined in the Constitution could change too. Is that something else that you would like clarity on, simply to perhaps address some of the fears that are being used by the Republican side that, look, this is where we're headed. It comes back again to society, I think. And 
civil society and being represented, whatever your political aff affiliation is? Well, I do think it's very important to be kind of rule of law, um, appropriate use of state mechanisms and all the rest. Just as a small legal point, actually, in fact, uh, you know, there only being 50 states is not actually enshrined in the Constitution. There, there, there being nine justices not enshrined in the Constitution. These are matters of law. I think we should mm -hmm. be careful about like very, very strong pro rule of law. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm, a, you know, you know, personally already voted for Biden by by mail, um, uh, because I actually think Biden is the rule of law vote as well. But. Uh, I think that's the important thing. And I think people should, you know, taking the rhetoric of this is anti-constitutional is part of where people in politics tend to lie and mislead. And I think that we want to get back to as much discussion of truth as important, as, as fundamental to a civil discourse and fundamental to how we learn and improve the society. Do you believe that Joe Biden stands for the entire Democratic Party? because you have become a significant donor for the Democratic Party. It's become sort of a huge focus for you since the 2016 election. Do you believe he speaks and can control the party? Because I guess that would underscore another one of the criticisms that, that's made here. Um, I, I think, look, so one of the things that's both wonderful and also sometimes a little, obviously a little frustrating with the Democratic Party is it has lots of camps. It has lots of people expressing <laughs> what is, how, how do we get better as a, as, as a society and what is important. But I think that Biden is right now the leader of the Democratic Party and has many, many constituencies who are hopeful for what he can do and, are, and back him and accept his leadership. And so I think the short answer is yes. Now, does that mean you can't find one person who's a Democrat who says something silly, foolish, you know, something that most of us wouldn't agree with? Absolutely. That, of course, doesn't speak for the Democratic Party. The, the values of, of, you know, like, how do we have a more inclusive uh, future society? How do we essentially help the middle class rise? How do we build towards the future? Uh, I think those things are all things that Biden is an excellent leader for. Yeah, because it comes back to the question of unity. Talk to me about the risk that if we do see a, a democratic sweep, that we see greater regulation and quicker on some of the big tech names, perhaps even a push for breakup, because to your point about certain voices within, within the party, some of them are pretty aggressive on this point. Is that a price worth paying, Reid, do you think, for so, a shift? So personally, yeah, so personally, I'm, I'm, I'm opposed to the notion, given that we live in a global world, that we're, that we're competing with China and other places of breaking up the tech companies. I think that's the wrong idea. I think we should shape them and harness them for the benefit of society, for the benefit of the middle class. I think there's a bunch of different ways to do that. Some of that may end up in regulation, but it shows you how important I think the vote for Biden is for business, for the American future and prosperity, that of course you would think, well, these are the people who, are, who may come for tech and say, we should break you up. And I disagree with that very strongly. And I still support it. I still campaign for it. I still donate because that's how important it is. Is big money an issue for the Democratic Party? Because it was traditionally the stronghold of the Republicans to see the big billionaire donors providing support. The Democrats seem to have nailed grassroots support. I mean, I saw the latest funding numbers are huge for the Democratic Party. And I think the average donation around $44. But you've sort of been challenged to some degree as a, a significant donator to the Democratic Party. Do we need big business and big billionaires out of politics? Or is it sort of a necessary requirement? 
Well, so, I mean, part of the irony is I've given money in multiple ways before to try to reduce money in politics, because I do actually prefer to stay closer to the one person, one vote, <laughs> you know, that kind of uh, influence. We have distortion of that with the Electoral College and other things already, but I would like to be there. But while money is in, I think it's important that you contribute money towards the kinds of society that you would like to see, the kind of sense of, okay, look, how can we, you know, for example, build technology to make more middle-class jobs, to make more manufacturing jobs? Uh, how can we be inclusive and fulfill the American dream by which everyone has a shot at making themselves and their families middle-class, upper-middle-class, like that, that path for doing, I think is very important. And so I've, of course, been a major donor for that purpose. Now, if I think we can figure out some way to say, look, money should have less of an impact on politics. Matter of fact, I personally, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, prefer spending money on building businesses, right? That would be, that would be like, if all of us were doing that, I think that would be much better. Until that's the case, I think it's important that money also speak on the side of, you know, kind of the things that make America kind of what it has been over the last hundreds of years. Speaking of building businesses, Reid, what about you post-election? Let's make the assumption that Joe Biden wins, that the Democratic Party take over. Will you continue to promote democratic causes? Or are you going to go back and refocus? Or is the sort of tectonic shift, I think, that perhaps that might represent too difficult to predict what you'll do at this stage? Well, it's always very difficult. I mean, before uh, Trump got elected, my stance to politics was always, hey, if, if a good, good business leader democratically elected in the U.S., anywhere in the world, came and asked for my help on entrepreneurship, tech, I would try to help, try to be a good citizen and participate. And I would donate to great leaders that I found, but otherwise would stay out. That would be my hope for where my future would be, because I'm, I'm inherently an entrepreneur and an, uh, an innovator, an inventor, a business creator, an investor. That would be what I would like to be doing. Now, that being said, obviously, if, again, you know, because part of the reason I got into politics is I, I viewed Trump to be a threat to the rule of law. I viewed him to be extremely divisive uh, in the society, essentially, you know, kind of promoting discord. And I said, OK, that that really, you know, must that, we need to, to stand up against that. I would like to go back to saying, look, let me just help with business, help with technology, help with entrepreneurship. And then, you know, if, if, if I can be useful, call me. Otherwise, you know, back to building businesses. Reid, did the protests stop if Biden wins? They didn't begin with the Trump presidency. We had trouble before. Do you think it calms if Biden wins? There are many challenges still in this economy and for the American people. I would love it for the, to be the case. Um, I think one of the, I don't think it will. I think one of the challenges you just mentioned, which is, you know, we're in this division. I also think, unfortunately, just as what you've been seeing for, you know, the last couple of months, I think that when Biden wins, I think Trump's going to be promoting discord. You know, I think he's going to continue to do that. Um, I don't know how, exactly how we should, you know, try to navigate that. But, you know, like, for example, when you see him on multiple uh, TV interviews where he says, well, the, the elections are legitimate if I win and not if I don't, which is absurd at its face. It's like, well, if he goes and, and, and continues to do that, he is going to be continuing to, to bring cost and discord uh, to, you know, kind of a, a, a fair democratic process. And I think that nearly guarantees that, unfortunately, uh, you know, kind of discord and, and, and civil unrest will continue. Yeah, lots to think about. Reid Hoffman, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for that and come back soon. Co-founder of LinkedIn and partner at Greylock Partners.
Thank you for that. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the week. A moment of reflection, I think, for traders today on the 33rd anniversary of the 1987 stock market crash, the so-called Black Monday, that anniversary today. Wow, we don't repeat that too many times. The major averages are moving higher, thankfully, today as we await new word on Washington regarding a stimulus deal. Earnings, too, from one-fifth of companies in the S&P 500 are on deck as well. IBM reporting later today. Netflix and Intel are up later this week, too. And Tesla, of course, as well. It's also Merger Monday for the beaten-down oil and gas sector. ConocoPhillips is buying shale oil driller Concho Resources for almost $10 billion dollars. A deal that's been anticipated, I have to say, for a few days now. The news coming this morning. Concho shares a little changed in early trading today, but they did rise some 8% last week. So the news already in the price. Also keeping an eye on Johnson & Johnson today, one week after the firm paused a crucial human trial of its coronavirus vaccine, neither the company nor the FDA have offered any answers to some pretty critical questions. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us. Elizabeth, great to have you with us as always. I, for one, am deeply impatient about getting information on anything to do with, with vaccines. And you always tell us to be calm and to be patient. How unusual is it to have heard nothing? You know, these are we asked the FDA and Johnson and Johnson some really basic questions about this pause. Let me tell you about two of these basic questions. One is so what happened was a participant became ill and so they paused it, which is what should happen while they try to figure out sort of what this means about the safety of the vaccine. But they won't answer the basic question of did this person get a placebo or a vaccine? It gets complicated because the company in its official statement doesn't say either way. Johnson and Johnson executives have said they don't know, but that was last Tuesday and Wednesday. It's been a week. You would think that if they wanted to, they would know what this recipient, what this participant rather, received. And if they don't know, why don't they know? Because it would be helpful to tell the public, hey, the person got the placebo, don't worry about it, or the person got the vaccine, and so therefore there needs to be an investigation done to see if there's a possible safety problem with this vaccine. The second question that's gone unanswered is, is this the first pause for this trial? We know about this one pause. It was in the media and then the company talked about it, but we don't know. Was it the first pause? When we asked the FDA and the company, they didn't answer. The FDA says that they're legally prohibited from giving those answers, that they have to come from the company, and the company didn't answer those questions. Julia? Yes. I'm sure you'll keep pressing and we'll keep watching for information, but for now... Um puzzling. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much for the update there. Thanks. All right. Major online shopping platforms like Amazon and Alibaba have increased their market share during the COVID crisis. Alibaba today says it will take a controlling stake in one of China's leading supermarket chains to better compete with its online rivals. Sharice Pham joins us now and has all the details. Did anyone say JD.com? Because it's about taking the fight to them, isn't it? Talk us through what we know. 
Indeed, the big rivalry, it continues into groceries. Alibaba pouring billions of dollars into an industry that has really been turbocharged by the COVID-19 pandemic. Alibaba paying about $3.6 billion to up its stake in SunArt. That's a big hypermarket and supermarket chain in China. And this has been going on for a while, right? We have seen tech giants around the world making a play for online groceries over there in the United States, Amazon on, of course, with Whole Foods. Over in China, JD.com has had a physical grocery presence with its grocery store called Fresh Hippo. It's had this tie-up with SunArt since 2017, and its main rival, JD.com, they've had a partnership with Walmart for years, as well as a local uh, retail chain called Yonghui. Now, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has just kind of accelerated the shift to buying groceries online. A lot of people that might have been uncomfortable buying bananas and milk online, they didn't really have a choice when lockdowns happened around the country. I mean, I can speak about this from my own experience. I live in Hong Kong. My parents live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I use Instacart to buy groceries for them because I love you, mom and dad, if you're watching, but you're not very good with using the smartphone and the iPad. So they tell me what they want. I ordered on Instacart. They get it in two to four hours. In China, it is even more competitive. JD and Alibaba in a fierce battle for that Chinese consumer. There are places in China where you can get online groceries delivered in an hour and some places in 30 minutes. So it's fiercely competitive. And analysts saying that this trend to shopping for groceries online, it's going to last well after the pandemic as people become more used to it. And you can bet that Alibaba will want to be dominant in this industry. You know, I couldn't agree more when you raise so many great points. But all I can remember about that is the fact that you're buying your parents groceries over in Canada from where you are in Hong Kong, Shreese. They're hunkered down. They're hunkered down. I I feel so bad. You know, if you're watching mom and dad, I love you guys and stay strong through the pandemic. And thank you for staying safe. And that goes to everybody out there who is you know, forced to stay indoors because they are at risk of this COVID-19 pandemic. And you got to do what you got to do. And sometimes that means buying online groceries and leaning on a daughter every now and then to do so. Helping out your family. Hi to Cherise's mom and dad. Thank you for joining us. Great job. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Up next. Pull testing. The FDA grants emergency approval for a COVID test that aims to find asymptomatic cases Could this be the key to successful reopening of schools and larger workplaces? Find out next. Welcome back to First Move. As COVID-19 cases surpass 40 million, fast, reliable testing is more critical than ever. The US regulator has just expanded its emergency approval of one such test, Hologic's Panther Fusion platform provides results in three hours and can process 1,000 samples a day. The FDA recently approved the test for asymptomatic patients, meaning it can now be used to screen seemingly healthy individuals. The regulator also greenlit the company's pool testing protocol. Joining me now is Steve McMillan, Chairman, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hologic. Steve, fantastic to have you on the show. It's long been... Our view and our discussion on this show that until we're mass testing, pool testing, we're not going to get some semblance of normality return to society. Is this what we're sort of heading towards with your technology? Clearly, what we want to be able to help get everybody back are the best results 
as fast as you can get them. And our technology magically kind of fits in the middle of, you've been hearing so much about PCR testing, right? And in the early days, a lot of it, it's by far more accurate, but it was taking a long time to return the results. And then you have what's known as the antigen testing, a lot of these rapid tests, but they're not nearly as sensitive or specific. So what our engineers and scientists have done, and, and we've been doing this for years, this is really our core competency, is we have a technology that's incredibly sensitive, but also can be run very quickly on our Panther system, of which we have the largest installed base around the world. For example, we have over 2,000 machines around the world, including almost 1,000 outside the US, Julian. So what that allows us to do is take the test quickly, run it quickly, get the results back to the patients, and that's what we need to build that confidence and knowledge to get everybody back to functioning again the way we want to. So you're saying that what you're trying to provide here is a, a test that has the accuracy of doing a, a PCR test rather than the antigen, which is seen as a little bit more suspect or, or less sensitive, but simply get the results back quicker. I mean, we've all heard the stories, three days, five days, 10 days in some cases, simply just to get that result back, by which point it's too late. Well, exactly. And that's been the magic. And it's why the FDA and frankly, a lot of the EU countries have really wanted us to be to market with the indications we've had. By the way, we've already produced tens of millions of tests. You know, this has been in our core competency. We're the world leaders in molecular testing for HPV, sexually diagnosed or, you know, sexually transmitted infections. So what we've been able to do and because our installed base is everywhere, Effectively, all we have to do is swab the patient, run it over to the lab, it can be tested quickly, and you have extreme sensitivity. The reason we got the asymptomatic claim from the FDA is because our test is so sensitive mm. that it can pick up people in what's known as asymptomatic. And I think, Julie, if you think about it in real simple terms, in the beginning of any virus or anything, the patient's viral load is very low, and then it builds as the symptoms build. The magic of catching it, and we keep hearing about the asymptomatic spread, the magic of having a test that's sensitive enough to pick it up pre-symptomatic is the magic where we can really control so much better and just be able to take the targeted actions that we want around not just the country, but the world. Yeah, and you reduce the amount of spread. So if you catch people early, quite yeah. frankly, you reduce the number of cases that you're dealing with. And, and that's the, the ultimate hope here, Steve. What exactly. we're still talking about, though, is doing a swab, getting it to a laboratory, using your fusion platform. How much does the platform itself cost? Can you envision a situation where you provide these to, say, big employers so that they can actually have one in their in their um, in their office where those swabs can be taken and the results can be given perhaps the same day or, or overnight? Or do we still have the delay of getting it to the laboratory and then someone being called or, or the processing part of this also takes time? Well, you're, you're so right to focus on a lot of it is the transportation time. And again, right. the magic of our Panther system to, to take it in two places. One is we have over a thousand installed in the United States. We're the only one that has high throughput Panthers in every state. We even, you know, go across Europe. We have multiple systems in Latvia, 
in Luxembourg. So in all cases, there's a Panther within oftentimes at most an hour drive of any facility. So, and in most hospitals. So for any patient going in, a hospital can test, swab you today, literally just walk it over to the lab. The magic as well, all the footage that always shows people pipetting and everything else, we've eliminated all those steps. So literally, you go from swab, you put the swab into the tube, the tube goes over the lab, it goes right on the machine, and you have results just a few hours later. So in most cases, people are getting the results back the same day or at worst next day. If somebody's tested in the afternoon, it can be run overnight and you're good to go the next morning. So it's, you know, that's the magic of, you know, really our footprint of the Panthers being everywhere. Steve, I have about 30 seconds very quickly. Now that you have FDA approval, are you talking to the government about getting funding? We we need to scale up, get more of these out there if you can manufacture them quickly enough. We have gotten some help from the uh, the U.S. government in scaling up. We've also, frankly, just been committing capital ourselves. We produce our tests both in our San Diego facility in the United States and for most of Europe and outside the U- outside the U.S. We produce in Manchester, U.K. So we're making the investments. We have more than doubled our production capacity since the spring, and we're continuing to invest further right now as we speak. Fantastic. Great work, Steve. Thank you to you and your team. And uh, come back and talk to us soon and we'll, uh, we'll track progress. Steve McMillan, thank Chairman, you, President, thank you and CEO of Hologic there. All right, when we return, the CEO of Siemens Energy says more must be done in the fight against climate change. Here's plans for action next. Welcome back to First Move. A giant deal in the oil industry. ConocoPhillips buying Concho Resources for nearly $10 billion. It comes as the outlook for oil demand continues to weaken. It's a time of great uncertainty. Flexibility is therefore crucial. That's the message from the CEO of Siemens Energy, speaking to our John John Defterius. Listen in. If I look as a CEO on my company, what we are trying to do is really make sure that We build the how we do things much more and keep a flexibility on a broad portfolio. I think nobody can predict what happens in the next 10 years. We need to have the optionality in the portfolio uh, going forward to find the different solutions. And also different solutions will come in different regions at a different point in time. In this regard, for me, uh, two things are important, keeping optionality and, and really differentiating through the how we do things. Are you worried we're well behind the curve of getting to the 2050 targets under the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, that even no matter what we do, we don't cap global warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade? I'm absolutely worried. This is why I get up every day and and go to work happily every day here, because I really believe he can influence something. Yes, I think we are uh, too timid and too, too late in a lot of things, but this is why we work on it and want to push it. And uh, no question. And and climate change is real. Climate change is there and it will come faster and more rigorously than we expect. But it doesn't mean that we can not do something. And the only thing we have to understand, we have to get from discussion mode and doing mode and and really start and stop uh, really looking for the silver bullet, which overnight turns everything renewable or turn everything sustainable. It's a little bit more complicated. But it really starts to do things. And this is why I continuously push on interim solutions. And yes, we are late. Uh, Former Vice President Joe Biden wants to get back into the Paris Climate Agreement. 
Uh, he has a $2 trillion plan. Will that change the narrative worldwide if there's a, a Biden in the White House with this policy that he's planning? Well, I, I mean, I, I really cannot really comment on, on uh, the presidential elections there who are going to join the White House. But I don't think so, honestly, because the world, the financial world, uh, really the consumers, the customers, the big energy companies, they know very well that they no need to push no matter what. And at the end, it will be more decisive where the capital flows uh, really than on what is uh, the regulations around it. And because regulations will be too slow anyway. And uh, I much more really believe that the companies and the capital are going to push it forward no matter what, because it makes sense. Yeah, business carries on regardless. Uh, John Defterius there. That's why I call him JD, because I stumble. <laughs> Let's move on. Boeing's troubled 737 MAX jet could be back in the air by the end of this year. American Airlines plans to resume passenger flights December 29th between Miami and New York, pending recertification from the FAA. The 737 MAX fleet has been grounded worldwide since March of 2019, following two crashes that killed 364 people. American lost $5 billion in the first half of this year and recently cut some 9,000 jobs. And finally, NASA working with Nokia to build a 4G cellular network on the moon. The plan is for the network to support the wireless operation of lunar rovers and navigation, as well as streaming video. Nokia's research arm Bell Labs was granted $14 million for the project. Like on Earth, the 4G network will be eventually upgraded to 5G. I love all things space, but hey, let's fix Earth first. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. And in the meantime, stay safe. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.